All right, good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 John, the letter of 2 John. And uh, we will be, believe it or not, concluding 2 John today. 2 and 3 John are the two shortest uh, books in your New Testament. And uh, so looking forward to uh, finish again uh, in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your continued grace to us. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful to his uh, creation, your children. Pray that you might help us as we look at this passage in front of us, that we would submit to it, that we would delight in it, and that you would grow us because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2003, the Spanish Navy uh, commissioned the building of four S-80 diesel submarines. These submarines were designed to replace uh, their Cold War era submarines. And uh, a decade later, in 2013, while the submarines were still being built, it was discovered that uh, a design flaw made these submarines 75 to 100 tons too heavy. And of course, at that weight, there was no problem with the submarines diving, (laughs) but they were wondering whether they could resurface. What possibly could cause such a serious Uh, miscalculation, a hundred tons too heavy. Well, one news article reports and says this, the original problem with the submarine dates back to 2013 when it was discovered that it was about a hundred tons heavier than it needed to be. That caused a problem for its buoyancy, obviously, so it could submerge but might not come back up again. A former Spanish official told the Associated Press at the time that someone had put a decimal point in the wrong place (laughs) and nobody paid attention to review the calculations. One decimal point off and a hundred tons later and you have a sinking submarine. But that was not all in this saga. The engineers determined, you already have this thing already half built, what are you supposed to do now? And so they determined that a solution to, would be to increase the overall size of the submarine, okay? This place is more water, I don't know however the buoyancy thing works, right? But increase the size of it, and that'll account for this 100 tons extra. Um, again, another article says uh, they recommended that the shipyards lengthen the S-80s by 30 feet, stretching it from 232 feet now to 265 feet, add a pressure hull ring to support the new length, and increase their displacement from 2,200 tons to 3,100 tons. Construction continues on the submarines. But then, in 2018, another problem was discovered. Due to the increased size of the submarines, 
they would no longer fit in port. (laughs) And so another news article says this, as a result, the base will have to be dredged and reshaped to accommodate the now floating longer vessel. This brings a whole new meaning to the expression, measure twice, cut once. (laughs) Okay. All of this... As a warning to you engineers, double-check your math, first of all. (laughs) But more importantly than that, and more to the point of what's going on in our passage today, truth matters. There's very real consequences of getting things wrong. The consequences of rejecting truth are significant. Nobody cares, and out of all the articles that I read on this topic... Nobody described how the engineer who made the error was feeling on that day that he made the error. Uh, Nobody cares how sincere his calculations were. Nobody explored his political positions on anything. He made a mistake that cost the Spanish Navy millions of dollars. In fact, uh, there were some a little bit of discussion on exactly how much, but I think at the end of the day, it was basically double the cost per submarine uh, because of this error. Uh, This is just one, of course, of many um, examples that we can look at to see how foolish we are as a society to make the suggestion that truth is relative. There's no way. It, it, It actually matters There's actually something out there, believe it or not, called right and wrong, correct and incorrect. And these are real things out there in the world. It's preposterous to think that people could think in such a way as to say that truth doesn't matter, and yet here we are. Truth matters. Last week, we saw the first six verses, and now we will look at uh, the last uh, verses, verses 7 through 13. And the whole letter has been surrounding this concept of truth. The first half was a little bit more of the positive outlook, and this second half is now a little bit more of the the negative outlook. That is to say, in the first half of 2 John, it was love the truth, know the truth, we're united by the truth. And now the second half of 1 John is watch out for the deceivers, watch out for those who would distort the truth, watch out for those who don't believe in the truth. So let's read this together. And like we did last week... Uh, This is short enough that we're going to read the entire letter uh, again today. Second letter of John, beginning in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandment from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. And now beginning where we're going to be at today. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
See to yourselves that you do not lose what we accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. <coughs> if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. We're really going to look at this in two sections. We're going to see his admonition of what going too far looks like in verses 7 through 11, and then his conclusion to the letter. Looking at verse 7, we see that John writes this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, and those who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. I recall many years ago, back in my uh, Boy Scout days, that one of our leaders um, would oftentimes tell us that um, all of us worship the same God. We all just pray a little bit differently than one another. And uh, I remember even way back then, I knew you cannot reduce all of the differences and doctrinal distinctions that exist in this world today to simply the trope, we just pray differently than one another. There are obviously much more significant distinctions that exist than that. Any honest look at the Christian landscape in our country would have to conclude that that is simply not an accurate way of looking at things. Doctrinal differences within American Christianity rise to a level that is more than just merely praying differently. In fact, some, and in fact many doctrinal differences, are life and death differences and distinctions. Doctrinal distinctions are important. People have died physically over the defense of their convictions, And likewise, people really do die spiritually for all of eternity over getting things wrong. In fact, one of the most frequent warnings in the New Testament is the warning against doctrinal impurity. And just consider a few verses here. I Probably not the the most aesthetically pleasing slide here, but I just tried to cram all of them on one uh, slide. So... um, that's what it is. But here's just a sampling of some of the passages in Scripture that talk about the seriousness of getting things wrong prophetically, uh, particularly in the Old Testament prophets or um, false teachers uh, in, in Scripture here. That prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, serious consequence for getting it wrong. That some of your prophets shall die. Your guides mislead you. Those who guide this people have been leading them astray. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets? I am against those who prophesy lying dreams. Beware of false prophets. Such men are false apostles. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Men will arise speaking twisted things. Do you think doctrine is important? That's just a very small sampling. The fact of the matter is you cannot read your Bible, you cannot read your New Testament or your Old Testament, and walk away concluding that doctrine 
is optional or secondary. And the reason that we need to emphasize this point is because the sentiment that doctrine divides or doctrine is secondary is prolific in our country and even in our own community. If you conclude that doctrine is not worth fighting over, then you are advertising to the world that you don't read your Bible. I mean, this is like one of the absolute core things and absolute core hills to die on is that we get truth right. There is a monumental difference uh, between uh, those who believe that you earn your salvation and those who believe that your salvation is a free gift. And one is a, and it's a matter of life and death where you land on this. Our present passage emphasizes this. Again, look at verse 7. It's a warning in the same class as the other warnings. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Be wary. Be watch. Watching out for deceivers is, of course, paramount in Scripture. The root word for deceivers here in verse 7 shows up 57 times in the New Testament. It can be translated variously such as led astray, or error, or deceit, or deceiver, or misled, or wanderer. And I'm going to give to you another sampling, not all of all 57, but a sampling of many of the passages in the New Testament that use this same word. And I've uh, put in bold the word. So this is the root word for deceivers in 2 John 7, showing up in several passages in the New Testament. Look at the ways that we're warned against being deceived or wandering or being misled. See that no one leads you astray. They will lead many astray. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. To lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See that no one leads you astray. They will lead many astray. To lead astray again, if possible, the elect. See that you're not led astray. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. (laughs) Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Some have wandered away from the faith, deceiving and being deceived. For we ourselves were once led astray. They always go astray in their heart. Do not be deceived. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul. You were straying, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. Take care that you are not carried away with the error. Those who are trying to deceive you, let no one deceive you. And of course, our present one, many deceivers have gone out into the world. I don't know how to make this any, cut this any other way. The Bible, and particularly as we've seen here, the New Testament has a prolific amount of statements. And there's many, many more than these talking about the seriousness of sound doctrine, of healthy doctrine. Last week, we saw that our shared love for truth unites us as Christians. And this week, what we're seeing is the corollary of that. That is to say that to love the truth means that you hate falsehood and that you are careful about deception. John writes to this lady that many deceivers have gone out into the world. And of course, we understand that there are more people teaching falsehood in the world today than we can possibly count. It's just prolific. In the specific letter of 2 John, where we are now, you'll note that the deception surrounded those who were not confessing Jesus' coming in the flesh. 
He's saying specifically, watch out for this false teaching in particular. There are some people who are not confessing that Christ has come in the flesh. They're denying his humanity. This is the same letter or same error that John wrote against in the letter of 1 John that we just saw, and so I won't rehash all the details about that. In any event, John labels these false teachers as what? Deceivers. And he even actually has a harsher statement than that. He goes as far as to say that these people who are teaching false doctrine, he labels them as the Antichrist. Okay? Um, There is a time and place for harsh language, by the way, in addressing the sins of our age. And so he calls them the Antichrist. And his warning then, the way that you deal with this, notice what he says in the next verse. How are we going to deal with this false teaching, these deceptive people? And he starts off with simply saying, see to yourselves. I want to emphasize this a little bit. Watch out. There's many deceivers that have gone out into the world. Okay, how do we deal with that? See to yourselves. Look to yourselves. The first admonition is to make sure that everything is safe and secure at home. Right? Barnes says about this, when error abounds in the world, our first duty is not to attack it and make war upon it. It is to look to the citadel of our own souls and see that all is well guarded there. When an enemy invades a land, the first thing will not be to go out against him, regardless of our own strength or of the security of our own fortresses, but it will be to see that our forts are well manned and that we are secure there from his assaults. If that is so, we may then go forth with confidence to meet him on the open field. In relation to an error that is in the world, the first thing for a Christian to do is to take care of his own heart. That's exactly what John says. Watch out, there's many deceivers in the world. See to yourselves. And so I would like to admonish all of you in the same way that John admonishes this lady, and I will say, Crossview Church, see to yourselves. Look to your own hearts. No one can slay the dragons in the culture who has not slain the dragons in his own home. And no one can slay the dragons in his own home who has not slain the dragons in his own heart. I recently finished a book, uh, not written by a Christian author, but a a book uh, where even a secularist is seeing the importance that fathers have not only in raising their own children, but actually in impacting broader culture. Um, and, of course, you know and you've seen them before, survey after survey and study after study shows the same thing, that absent fathers, fathers who advocate their responsibility, uh, has a profoundly negative impact on their family and their society. And as I was reading this book, he was exploring a question, and he was saying, the fact that we know this so So, as sure as we do, 
He said, why are all of the politicians and all of the people in places of influence not saying this? Why is, why is it absent? Why is this not part of the solution that they give? Is to raise up strong fathers. And he said, the reason is because all of their homes are in chaos. <laughs> they, 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 can't, they can't go out and say, go do this, because they would be hypocrites to do such a thing. See to yourselves. They can't tell us how important biblical families are because none of them have one. Now, I, I do want to say here as a little bit of a, a side note, I realize um, that some of you here are part of a broken home of, of some sort, okay? I don't want to gloss over that. Uh, I realize that some of you may be in that situation because of no fault of your own, or some of you may be in that situation because of foolish decisions that you've made in the past that you've repented over. I understand that, okay? Um, let me just say a little bit of encouragement to you. Wherever you are, there is still a path forward to obey God today. Okay? Every single person in this room has the skeletons in our closet. This is why we preach grace. Okay? So what is my admonition to you? Flee to Christ today. That's the admonition to everyone here. You can get up today and obey the Lord from here on out. There is a principle that we looked at during our recent men's study. Healthy societies are founded on healthy churches, which are founded on healthy families, which are founded on healthy uh, individuals. And so that's what John is saying here. Verse 8, again, let's go back to it. He says, see to yourselves. Yes, the world is in shambles. Yes, the world is in chaos. But look to your own citadel first. Look to your own heart. Overcome the sin and temptation in your own heart through God's grace first. He acknowledges in verse 8 that there is a possibility of losing, as he says, what we've accomplished. Um, But he says that he wants them to receive a full reward. Now, I want to be clear that verse 8 is not teaching us that one can lose one's salvation. At the same time, we do understand that it is possible to have a diminished reward. In 1 Corinthians 3, we saw this when we went through 1 Corinthians recently in verse 15. Uh, where Paul wrote and says, uh, if any man's work is burned up, you remember this passage where he's, uh, our, our, our work is being scrutinized and the, the precious metals, the gold and the silver and all that, that in, is, endures through the fire. And yet there are things that get burned up. He says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as so as through fire. And the idea behind this is that we're not going to lose our salvation, but there is uh, an opportunity that we uh, have to earn certain kinds of rewards in heaven. Barnes notes on this, the truth which is taught here is one of interest to all Christians, that it is possible for even genuine Christians by suffering themselves to be led into error or by failure in duty to lose a part of the reward which they may have obtained. MacArthur says on this, while salvation cannot be lost, Unfaithful believers may forfeit some of the reward that faithfulness to the truth would have gained them. All of this is to say this. The commands in the Bible are real. The warnings in the Bible are real. And it's serious. 
And so what we have here in our own passage is the warning in verse 7 that many deceivers have gone out into the world. And in verse 8, he's saying the way you deal with this is look to yourselves and avoid this deception. It is possible that we can be deceived and we can go off the rails. Look at verse 9. This is an example of this. This is all fitting in this theme of watching out for deception. Watch out that you're not deceived. Look to yourselves. Be careful. These commands are real. Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. This is where I've gotten the title for the message today about going too far. Verse 9 is referring to people who go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. They've gone off the rails. Those who go too far, as the verse says, do not what? They go too far by not abiding in the teaching of Christ. Those who go too far give evidence by their wandering that they, in the words of verse 9, do not have what? God. On the other hand, the second half of the verse tells us that those who do abide in the teaching, that is, those who do not go off the rails, have what? Both the Father and the Son. They're genuine Christians. You see the contrast here? Those who go too far, those who ignore Scripture and go outside and make their own doctrine and chart their own path, they give testimony that they don't care about what Scripture says and that they don't belong to God. On the other hand, those who abide, evidence that they do have God. The contrast here, by the way, is between going too far and abiding. Paul makes a similar comment in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. He says, um, now these things, brothers, I have applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that what? You may learn not to go beyond what is written. Okay? This is, this is elevating the supremacy of the word of God. Right? This is to say that the Bible gives to us good boundaries that we are not to cross. Now, I want to dig a little bit more on this word that is translated, goes too far. The Greek word carries the idea of going before. And James Montgomery Boyce says this about the word. The only truly idiomatic translation of the word in English is progressive. Okay, Those who go too far, those who are progressive. In fact, one translation does translate the word this way, and it says, anyone who is so progressive as to not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now, I do want to be cautious here. Um, John is not writing against modern-day progressives, okay? But he is writing against the progressives in his own culture and his own day. And the idea of the word essentially is the same thing. Those who go too far, those who say, I'm going to advance, I'm going to go beyond what Scripture has given to us. The tension in verse 9 is, as one author has put it, the antithesis between progressing and abiding. Those are the two things that are at odds with one another in verse 9. Do you see that? Look, 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 let's, uh, let me go back here. 
Anyone who goes too far or is progressive doesn't have God. The one who does what? Abides does have God. So you see the connection between it goes too far and abide. Those are the ones that are at odds with one another. The progressive and the abiding. Those are the two um, that, are, that, are at, that are at odds here. Christians are instructed to abide in sound doctrine. They are not to be progressive in doctrine. And that is a big difference. The admonition for us Christians is not, you should be progressive in your doctrine. The admonition is no, you must abide in the doctrine that already has been revealed. Big difference. And from that perspective, it does address modern progressives. Anyone today, whether they use the label progressive or not, who seeks to be theologically progressive is putting themselves outside the faith. Remember, novelty is not something to be lauded in doctrine and theology. John writes that those who are progressive, that is to say, those who do not abide in the teaching of Christ, do not have God. Talk about an indictment against modern-day Christianity. This is what Christianity today in our country is almost founded on, is how out there can we get and how much can we progress and advance in our doctrine so we're beyond the caveman days of those guys like Paul and those backwards sinking people. Thus, progressivism is cancer. And you really have to understand the seriousness of this. Theological progressivism seeks to break away from the boundaries of Scripture and to chart your own course. John says if you do this, if you break away, if you refuse to abide in the doctrine that has already been given to us, and you seek to chart your own course and your own destiny and make up your own way, you are giving testimony that you are outside of Christ. Because Christianity is right here. This is why uh, the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary Journal can say on this verse, uh, rather straightforwardly, doctrinal progressives lack eternal life. I mean, that is exactly what the verse is saying. Uh, And by the way, this is not a little soundbite that we can use to dunk on our religious and political opponents. Okay, that's not the purpose of bringing this up. It is a condemnation, a serious condemnation for those who would be so arrogant as to go outside of Scripture, but it is also a warning to us that we do not go outside of Scripture. Examples are a dime a dozen today. If you have to do hermeneutical gymnastics in order to fit your view into Scripture, then it's probably because you're going too far. The myriads of sexual perversions is just one example. Add to that the multiple ways in which gender distinctions are broken down or the doubt that's cast on the Bible by higher criticism. All of these and more are examples of going beyond Scripture. I know the Bible says this, but... And so let us be guided by the wisdom that God has given to us in His Word. It really is pretty straightforward. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. You guys memorized this when you were kids, okay? Doesn't really get much more complicated than that. 
The next two verses in John, Second uh, John, we read, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. This is one of those passages that does not bode well with the spirit of the age. And perhaps even some of you may read this verse initially and be a little bit squeamish about it. Don't even let him in your house. Don't even give him a greeting. <clears throat> and uh, if, if that is you, I, I don't know if it is or not, but if it's you, <clears throat> let me just encourage you to squelch your first impulse to find an obvious way around the meaning. In fact, every time you go to Scripture, squelch that impulse when it comes up to say, let me find a way that this doesn't mean what it says that it means. John is saying that you should not receive false teachers in your home or even greet them. We could, and this is where I'm going to try to fit this passage together so far, we could, in the name of love, and in the words of verse 9, be too progressive in welcoming false teachers into our home. Let me jump right to the principle of the matter. We read a verse like this and say, well, what about hospitality? And what about love? And what about, you know, all of the buzzwords today, tolerance and all this kind of stuff? What about all of this stuff? Let me jump right to the principle of the matter. If we could summarize these two verses and pull the principle out of it, we would say this, you are not to subsidize false teaching or sinful behavior. Don't subsidize it. Do not give another person the opportunity to propagate false teaching. Don't participate in that. Okay? Um, Let me try to get a little bit practical here, give you a couple examples that I think may help. I don't think... I don't think this passage forbids us from saying, uh, welcoming, say, for example, let's say that a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and says, I have a message for you. I think you can bring them into your home and preach the gospel to them. I think you can do that. Um... I think that this passage is preventing us from offering hospitality so that we subsidize what they're doing. In fact, come into my home, stay for a couple hours so you don't go all these other places and knock on their doors, you know. Like, we need to preach the gospel to unbelievers, okay? We need to do that. So let's, let me uh, give you another example of something that I think this passage would prevent us from doing. Let's say, for example, you have a relative. Let's say that it's a cousin who lives out of state. And let's say that they're, they're, your cousin is a Mormon, let's say. And let's say that he is coming to your city in order to hold a conference on Mormonism. Okay? I think this passage prevents you from welcoming him into your home even though he's your blood and flesh. Why? Because by being hospitable to him, you are enabling him and subsidizing his false teaching. And so I cannot do that. 
I think one of the most difficult things to wrestle with here is when you have the relationship between parents and their adult children. And this is another application that I think is challenging to swallow. And I would just say, think of a parent who assists or subsidizes his adult child's sinful lifestyle. This is happening all over our country today, okay? So let me give an example of a child's behavior. Let's say that you have a child who is able to work but just says, I don't want to work. I'm just going to be lazy and play video games all day long, okay? Um, By allowing that child to remain there, you're subsidizing their sin. You're enabling them to do that. And I think this passage forbids that. You're going to be in my house? You play by my rules, okay? You're going to work. You're going to get a job, whatever it might be. A child who sins by refusing to work is enabled to continue in that sin when his parents let him remain unconfronted. This is hospitality corrupted then. Godly hospitality is glorious. Worldly hospitality is corrupt. Right? Now, I understand and I realize that if we went around the room today and asked each one of you and called on each one of you, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? And I, and I think that at a basic level, you let the principle of the verse drive that. Am I subsidizing false teaching? Am I subsidizing sinful behavior? That's the question. And when it gets confusing, seek out other believers here for wisdom and encouragement. And I'm happy to help in that as well. False teachers prey on compassionate people. Don't let your compassion pull you into making foolish choices. This is most likely what this lady was doing, assuming it was an individual. Or even if it was a church, the church is doing this. She was, in the words of verse 9, going too far, being too progressive, and in the name of love, compassion, and mercy, inviting people into her home that she should not have been, and now they're enabled to go out and propagate their false teaching. Don't participate in that. MacArthur says on this, the prohibition here is not to turn away the ignorant. It does not mean that believers may not, un, may not invite unbelievers, even those who belong to a cult or false religion, into their midst. Okay? And I agree with him here. That would make giving the truth to them difficult, if not impossible. The point is that believers are not to welcome and provide care for traveling false teachers who seek to stay in their homes, thereby giving the appearance of affirming what they teach and lending them credibility. You need to have wisdom in knowing when to open your door and when not to open your door. Do not enable people to propagate false teaching or to continue unrestrained in their sin. Um, If you do this, What does verse 11 say you do? You participate in their evil deeds. One author says, if believers provided hospitality for false teachers, they would share responsibility for the effects of the teacher's false teaching. 
It's a pretty serious condemnation. The immediate, the immediate impulse of most Christians today, I would say, probably, is to blunt or soften this verse. And yet, there is no reason to do so. It says what it says, and that's it. We are to guard the truth at all costs. The final verses of Second John are as follows. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that your joy may be made complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is his conclusion. As I mentioned last week, uh, the letter of 2 John follows the normal conventions for writing letters in the first century. He has an introduction, he has the body, and he has the conclusion, and that's it. Um, He has a lot to write. He wants to do so in person. Uh, Let me give you a little side note here. Uh, I think there's greater value in face-to-face communication than anything else. Um, and, And the side note rabbit trail here is we have a lot of ways to communicate with people today with the technology that we have. And I would just encourage us to use those things as tools rather than as something to hide behind. Um, uh, Every now and again, uh, I'll maybe post something on social media, and every now and then people will have a little bit of a comment battle below. And what you don't see behind the scenes is me reaching out to that person privately and saying, I got time on Tuesday at 7 o'clock for coffee. Would you like to meet with me? Uh, I would just encourage us to take all of those conversations that are happening and funnel them to -to face-to-face conversations as much as is possible. There's a a lot more value in that, okay? You can't um, throw mud at someone as easily when you're sitting across from them as uh, you can through a keyboard. Um, And so uh, keep that in mind. This will, according to 2 John, increase your joy. Finally, the lady's nieces and nephews greet her. It says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Uh, again, uh, if he's talking about a church, this could be a reference to some churches that they've planted, and that sort of thing. And that's the end. Second John. So how do we conclude? Truth matters. Be on your guard against false teaching. And then I have four points of application. Application number one. Guard yourself against doctrinal impurity. Evaluate everything by scripture. Don't believe everything you hear. Okay? There are many deceivers that have gone out into the world. Some have gone too far. Not abiding in the teaching of Christ. But you abide in that which you have heard from the beginning. Guard yourself against doctrinal impurity. The second application is see to yourselves. Seek to bring order to yourself and your household before you try to address society. Clean house, slay your own dragons. Bring self-control and order into your own heart. Okay, I'm not saying don't ever go out. Yes, we need to be engaged in confronting other people. I get that. And I'm saying just do this first like this afternoon, and then do that this evening, right? Like, there's no reason why we should delay in any of this. See to yourselves first. Three, abide in the teaching of Christ. 
shun theological progressivism, recognize the danger in theological novelty. Okay, the scripture continues to exhort us again and again. This was a theme in 1 John. It's a theme again in 2 John to abide, remain, stay in the teaching that we've had from the beginning. Do not try to be uh, bring theological novelty to bear on the situation. Shun theological progressivism. And then finally, support and love the truth. Remember the first part of this letter we're united by our shared truth that we have. Do not subsidize false teaching or sinful behavior. Do not give to someone or support someone or help someone who may be enabled to spread false teaching because of your work, okay? Um, this goes with donating money to different organizations and charities. Know where you're giving money to. Uh, know what you're supporting. Um, love the truth. All right, let's pray. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for this time that we could look at this passage. We thank you for the second letter of John. We thank you that this has uh, provided us with wisdom that comes from you. We thank you that... There is an emphasis on the importance of truth and doctrinal purity and remaining and abiding in the truth that's from the beginning. Help us to reject theological novelty. Help us to stand firm as the winds of culture shift in different directions. Help us to stand firm on the foundation of Scripture. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your continuing love. We pray these things in Christ's name.